So this evening I'd want to explore the third of the three ways of seeing that bring liberating insight. And this is the seeing into anatta, usually translated as not self. And I want to explore that in the context of the other practices um, of our retreat. And again, I want to invite you to, as you listen to the talk, also be present. Also, uh, in whatever way helps you to keep on practicing as you're listening. It could be to do the uh, samadhi practice as you listen. Could be just to stay generally connected with the body. So in our retreat, we're developing in a more focused way, three forms, three main forms of practice. The first is samadhi practice. The second are these three ways of um, doing insight practice, particularly by going and exploring these three ways of seeing that bring liberating insight into uh, impermanence, into dukkha or reactivity or suffering and into anatta or not self. And then the third is uh, our practice of cultivating uh, spacious awareness, which we'll get to in about a day and a half or so. We'll have some intimations of it before that. And these three core practices are supported, we might say, by the metta practice and by the body-based practice, uh, walking and, and the qigong. And so in a way, we could say that we have uh, five core practices. And it's actually a pretty good way to look at um, one's fundamental practices. That if we, if we have training in samadhi practice and these three modes of insight practice, in spacious awareness, metta, grounding in the body, that's pretty good. Those are really the main areas of training. And so we're, we're working with all of those. And yet we know that uh, we don't always get to practice uh, with these uh, modes in a deeper way. You know, that's one of the reasons I think uh, that I very much like this retreat, get to presume the basics and go a little further and spend time with with these uh, deeper practices. And I think we're beginning to see more how the three are interrelated, the the first three, and particularly at this point, the first two, that the samadhi gives us a basis for looking more carefully, looking with more clarity at, at phenomena. And then in turn, the samadhi practice and the insight practices that we'll do will make it more possible to open to that spacious awareness, as we'll we'll see. So I wanted just to say um, a few more things about samadhi practice and a little bit about impermanence and and dukkha, and then spend most of the time talking about uh, anatta. So the the fundamental aim of samadhi practice is to have the capacity 
to bring the mind to stay with an object and be able to have some duration of staying. And you can see how this is crucial for the insight practice. If the mind could not stay with the flow of impermanent phenomena, we wouldn't really be able to see very much. And so we need often first to cultivate that capacity to stay with whatever the object is, whatever the focus is. We develop that in uh, samadhi. And yet samadhi in itself uh, is not freeing. Samadhi in itself doesn't necessarily give uh, liberating insight. In fact, this was the finding, as many of you know, of the historical Buddha that he first developed, as um, I mentioned a few nights ago, he first developed the samadhi practice, studying with some of the great teachers of samadhi at his time, but he found that it didn't give him the liberating insight that he was looking for. And he actually gave up on that particular path of exclusive samadhi and he tried another path, which was that of asceticism, where pleasure was seen as the enemy. And he thought that might do it, to have a form of extreme asceticism, eating very little, doing yogic austerities and so forth. And he eventually also came to the conclusion that that wasn't it as well. And so he what he came to eventually was that one needed to, the short version would be that he came in his own awakening to have insight into the nature of phenomena, into the nature of, we might say, ordinary experience in a way which was liberating. And in his own summary of how others might come to that liberating understanding, he particularly pointed to looking at anicca, impermanence, dukkha, reactivity, suffering, and anatta, not self. That was the conclusion of his own uh, awakening. And yet the samadhi practice was crucial. You know, he reported that the night of his awakening, he was able to have the mind be, and this is from his, from his own account, purified, bright, unblemished, malleable, wieldy, steady, imperturbable from the samadhi practice. And then he brought his attention to phenomena. So I think our way of framing these three modes of liberating insight, very much traditional in that sense, and we like the language of the three ways of seeing that bring liberating insight. Sometimes you may find, if you do some reading, that uh, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, uh, anatta are sometimes called the three characteristics of phenomena. And that sometimes suggests a more metaphysical understanding of phenomena. We like the emphasis on what the, uh, teach, the English teacher, Rob Berbea, calls seeing that frees. 
That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a way of seeing that brings freeing insight. And the understanding is that looking in these particular directions is a, if not the fundamental way to do that. And it really points to uh, an aspect of mindfulness, which is sometimes misunderstood, uh, you know, particularly in the contemporary way that mindfulness is being uh, used and taught, that mindfulness is a general capacity to know what one is experiencing, but the instructions for mindfulness are not simply to be mindful. You know, we don't, say, we don't simply say, be mindful. And the Buddha basically didn't teach that either. He didn't just say, okay, be mindful. Rather, this is an important point, it could, could be in some ways a subtle point. He said, be mindful of this. Be mindful of the body. Be mindful of the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Be mindful of your thoughts and emotions. Be mindful of the larger patterns of experience. Be mindful of impermanence. Be mindful of dukkha. Be mindful of the uh, constructions about self. So he, he was really implying that we need to look in a certain way. We don't just look. We don't just bring mindfulness in, but we bring mindfulness and look in a particular direction. Pretty crucial point, can be misunderstood. And you can see that with what we're doing here, that we're looking in very specific places, very specific directions. We're looking in these ways because in a sense we could say that our confusion about these three aspects are fundamental pillars, we might say, of suffering that our confusion and even delusion about impermanence and about uh, reactivity and about the nature of ourselves are the, what, the, uh, the bars of our prison. And so we wanna look carefully in order to um, take out the bars. <laughs> Wes Nisker has a nice way of talking about the three ways of seeing that liberate. And you can listen for the three, uh, the, but he'll, he won't do it in the order that we're doing it. He'll do it in, in, uh, in a little, some of a poetic, humorous way. Uh, the first he'll focus on dukkha and then uh, impermanence and then um, anicca. So this is his formulation of instructions. Listen for the three. Life is hard. It'll put you through the changes, but don't take it personally. <laughs> so a few more words about um, impermanence, and then a few words about reactivity, and then I'll, I'll, f- I'll focus on uh, an, uh, anatta. Uh, so with impermanence, again, we can see it easily on a gross level. We can reflect on the changes, again, in the climate, in the, the weather, in the political world, the changes in history, uh, changes, whatever, in fashion, ideas, 
all sorts of things. And we can track that. And again, that's very important. And, you know, uh, again, in many traditions, as I mentioned in the morning, in many traditions, reflection on that level of impermanence is taken to be a very crucial practice. In, in Tibetan tradition, it's one of the preliminary practices. One looks at impermanence, again, in a fairly ordinary way, just reflecting on the impermanence of things in an obvious way. But we bring in also our own impermanence. The training that we're doing in a meditative way is to see impermanence on a more subtle level and to see the moment-to-moment impermanence and to see as the mind gets more quiet in ways that we don't always see. And so again, one of the reasons why samadhi is so important that we, um, um, without samadhi, the world gets very solidified. You know, it's as if, uh, it's as if we're seeing the world like a film with 24 frames a second, everything looks solid, moving, And then with samadhi, it's it's as if we could actually slow things down, notice frame after frame, and see how everything is being put together in a way. Everything is being constructed in a way. And the samadhi helps us to do that. It helps us to not see things as quite uh, quite so solid. And I just wanted to add one piece to that, which is very interesting, that in a way contemporary uh, science, particularly the science of perception and um, meditative traditions are taking us to a very similar place to see that what we take to be permanent and solid is, is more or less constructed by the mind and not so permanent and not so solid. And so for example, um, a lot of the recent work in the neurosciences lets us know that uh, rather than there being a kind of uh, external world out there full of objects that our perception kind of takes a picture of and relays to our brain, which is what, which was the model that used to be the basis for science until actually not so long ago, maybe you know, 40, 50 years ago. That was the basis, sometimes called positivism. Some of you probably know that word. And um, more recently in psychology, the sense is that our world is a kind of construction made up of a kind of interaction with whatever there is. But we can't really presume that we're just simply getting the uh, input from the external world. But rather, there's a very significant constructive aspect of perception. And that we tend to solidify things through our perception, through our language, through our concepts, as Susie was saying last night. And this is extremely useful. It just doesn't happen to be fully accurate. (laughs) Very, very useful. Not to be given up, but not really uh, the way things are. One of the interesting things that, I, that uh, people have found about perception is that there's a um, characteristic of human beings called persistence of vision, which is, that, which is that the retina keeps the image of whatever it's looking at for about a fifth of a second. 
creating much more of the sense of solidity. And there's also ways that humans create objects in ways that are uh, rather more developed and in a way more solid than other, other species. It's quite interesting. And um, there's a phenomenon called flicker fusion, which is more or less how our brains work. The reality is actually flickering and changing. It's kind of what we experience when the mind gets quiet in meditation. You experience things changing and one can sense, oh, I'm kind of putting things together. But there, that's actually a phenomenon that uh, the neuroscientists have studied where there's flicker fusion. Everything's actually flickering, but we kind of fuse it together to make it seem like it's all connected. And we don't know that, right? It's happening without consciousness. But you can kind of, people can, if you, when you study children, you can see how children have to learn to come to a solid world. And in a similar way, some of you may, may have read, uh, there's a book by Oliver Sacks where he talked about a man who was blind by birth named Virgil. And Virgil um, was blind, didn't know anything about the visual world. And they had an operation when he was like in his 40s where they brought back vision to him. Did he see the same world that we see? Not at all. In fact, it was so disconcerting for him that he preferred for the rest of his life to uh, keep his eyes closed. It was more like what the uh, psychologist William James called a buzzing, booming confusion, which he said was the state of children before they form objects, right? And so we solidify things and have this sense of permanence. In meditation, as in the neuroscience, we come to see it a little differently. We come to see when the mind gets more quiet, we see things as a little more constructed. And I just I thought I had one more point on impermanence that um, one period of time when I was doing a lot of practices very similar to what we've been doing with impermanence at a retreat, uh, I found myself doing impermanence practice like all day long for a number of days. And it, it um, started to influence my meta practice. So in my meta practice, I started contemplating all the beings that I was offering meta towards and contemplating them as impermanent beings. It was really interesting it was, and it felt very poignant, right? But it, it uh, hadn't occurred to me before I did all that uh, imp- impermanence practice, but I started saying, may you who are impermanent <laughs> be well or whatever, you know, or rest in the awakened heart. But it was, it, was, it actually was very poignant. Uh, contemplating each being, much like Susie was uh, guiding us to do last night, to contemplate every being as impermanent and still offer kindness and warmth. There's a, there's a line, I think, from a poem by Rilke where he says, we are forever taking leave of each other. The sense of impermanence being a permanent way things are. Then just a few more words about uh, dukkha. 
you know, in, in the instructions uh, this afternoon, I brought up the interpretation of dukkha as reactivity, and the guidance was to focus on the reactivity of both uh, grabbing hold, of grasping, and of pushing away. And I think that can that that sense of dukkha can be helpful to bring that into our practice, and then just to look for for when that appears, uh, and the uh, just to just to be clear about one one point, you know, this this I think for me one of the ways that we talk about our whole practice is learning how to cut through our habits of reactivity, to cut, to really study our reactivity closely and to work with it. Um, And to become in a way responsive rather than reactive. For me, that's a very ordinary English, simple way of talking about the essence of our practice. It's to moment to moment to be able to be responsive rather than reactive. There's a lot that's packed into the notion of being responsive, right? Wise, compassionate, relatively centered, peaceful, and so forth. But it's a good way to see it. But it uh, being responsive, I think, also carries with it the notion that we're not being passive. You know, that we can cut through our reactivity, and still there's a question in the hall in the afternoon about, you know, if I don't follow my... Uh, if I don't follow pleasure, what's the basis for my life and my action? And we, I think in the inquiry, we saw that there could be that. So the uh, cutting through reactivity goes hand in hand with wise and compassionate response, just to, just to be clear about that. So the third of these ways of um, seeing that bring liberating insight is anatta or not self. And of the three, this is clearly the most conceptually confusing. So I will not attempt to explain it conceptually. Sorry. But I'll, I'll talk some, I'll use concepts, but mostly to point to ways of practicing. That's what I have found helpful. Along the way, there will be some conceptual points made, but the emphasis will be on pointing to ways of practicing. Uh, Achan Cha, who's uh, the teacher of Jack Cornfield, Achan Sumedho. Achan just means teacher in, in Thai. And he once said that if you um, try to understand anatta intellectually, it's possible that your head will explode. <laughs> he, perhaps he saw that happen to some people. And, and you can see why, because it's, it's a very confusing area. Just I'll give a few examples. I, I've been very interested in all the ways we get confused about it. So um, here's the first one. This is from the vast lore of uh, Jewish Buddhist humor. There's quite a lot of it. In fact, Spirit Rock is to some extent based on Jewish Buddhist humor, you know. You know, and the, the core teachers, Jack Cornfield, Sylvia Borstein, you know, James Barrows, Howie Cohn, I, I could go on. You know, um, we once had a, we, 
Uh, I, I was at a retreat at Insight Meditation Society, uh, gosh, uh, 40 years ago. And um, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw came. Actually, a few months later, Achan Cha came. So I got to study with both of them. Mahasi Sayadaw is the Burmese teacher, was the Burmese teacher, uh, who gives us our main methods of mindfulness, the labeling, the tracking, and so forth. And he came and taught at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And at that time, I, I remember the, the retreats were taught by Cornfield, uh, Goldstein, uh, Salzburg, Barsky, and Schwartz. <laughs> and so they took a photo of Mahasi Sayadaw, you know, very esteemed, somewhat serious Burmese teacher, walking down the street, the country road right near the, the center. And at that time, there was an ad campaign by a, um, uh, a rye bread company in New York, which was basically, I think it said, you don't have to be Jewish to love like Fleischmann's rye bread or something. And so they took this photo of Masi Saida and the caption was, you don't have to be Jewish to teach Vipassana. <laughs> so, in any case, um, so here from the lore, the Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there's no self. So maybe we're off the hook. <laughs> so a lot of confusion about the topic. The, the language is very confu confusing. You have some spiritual traditions talk about the true self, the deep self, the real self, and so forth. And even, even in the Buddhist tradition, there's all sorts of different language. You have uh, terms used uh, by the Buddha. One term is uh, maha-atta, which more or less means the big self. And so if there's not self, how do you talk about the big self? It's actually the same word that was used for Gandhi, mahatma, you know, which means like, but it actually means more like a, a great self. Um, but it can be confusing. And someone who has the first level of awakening in Buddhism is called a big person. <laughs> anyway, so if you just look at all that, your, the head can spin a little bit. You know, you look even at, uh, you know, contemporary language, people use the word ego and self, and in psychology, self has a totally different meaning and so forth. So um, if you look at all that and try to bring it all together, the, one's head can spin. So I will be mostly uh, giving practical guidance. And um, one other reason why the sense of, the, uh, of anatta can be confusing is that some people use um, the concept of not-self to sort of um, engage in what we sometimes call spiritual bypassing. Do you know that term? It basically means using spiritual rhetoric and concepts to avoid basic developmental tasks. <laughs> I have an example of this. This is, uh, this is from uh, uh, originally a short essay by Mariana Kaplan, who's a friend who, who lives locally. And she wrote this, it's called Zen Boyfriends. And it's her stories of dating spiritual men. <laughs> 
And it's great. She actually, it was so popular as a story, they made a play out of it. She's great. And this is humorous, but it's actually a real issue. I mean, we have a, we have a certain, we meet a certain number of people at Spirit Rock uh, who um, use spiritual rhetoric. You know, I mean, some, some people, they think, oh, there's no self. And my basic guidance to them is, I think it would be good to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> right, so this is a danger of, of the language. That's the larger point. So this is from, this is from her story. Um, this is uh, Mariana talking to Jake. Jake, if we're going to hang out together, I need to feel like you're really here with me and not always so detached. I open the floor. Jake, but who is the you who wants to hang out with the me? Mariana, I am the me and you are the you. <laughs> Jake, there is no difference, so we can never really be apart or together. It's all the same. Mariana, you're full of it. <laughs> she used a little different language. Jake, who do you think is the me that is full of it? <laughs> I think it is you. Who's getting angry? I'm getting angry. Look into my eyes, said Jake. What do you see? Mariana, you. Look more deeply. Now what do you see? I see a lonely man who thinks he's enlightened. It goes on. <laughs> but, you know, that's, um, that's, there some, that's a danger. We, that can happen with a lot of the Buddhist language, we can appropriate it for, as it were, we can appropriate the teachings about not-self to lead to aggrandizement of who, who are, we think ourselves are. So we have to watch out for that. <clears throat> so actually, in my notes, I have like six other major sources of confusion. <laughs> and... They're actually, I think, in some ways, the teaching about not-self is interesting because in some ways it's, it's a little bit one-sided. There's actually a famous passage where the Buddha met a wandering, uh, <clears throat> a wandering seeker named Vachagota, and he had a dialogue with him, and, and Vachagota asked, is there a self? And he stayed silent. He said, is there then no self? And he stayed silent. And later the Buddha explained that he stayed silent because for Vachagota, either one of those would be a trap. So, so again, the, the truth may be a little more nuanced. And um, Achan Cha said something very similar. He said, uh, he said the teachings about, not, about no self are not true. The teachings about self are not true either. Okay, so now we've clarified. Well, all the possible confusions here. What I have found as a skillful way to practice is this, pretty simple actually. It's to, it goes very much with our exploration so far of impermanence. It's basically to look into two aspects of the experience of a self. One of them is when there is more of a sense of a flow, when the sense of self has been, we might say, thinned out 
and we have more of a sense of flow, whether in ordinary life, in various uh, activities, or in meditation. And so, in fact, the main way that the Buddha taught in this uh, mode was to point to something very similar to what we've been doing. That is, can you just look at the constituents of experience in themselves without bringing in a sense of self? Can you just be with sound? Can you just be with body sensations? Notice when a sense of self comes in, often when there's reactivity, right? Often when there is some comment and so forth. Can you just be with this and notice when the sense of self comes in, but particularly pointing to ways of experiencing more of a flow without a sense of self. That's what I'll talk about first. And then the second area that we can look at The first area is when we might say the self has been somewhat thinned out. And the second area is when the self appears to be very thick. This could be when there's reactivity or self-image or there's a part of our being that has a wound that we feel that there's a very thick sense of self, self self-consciousness and so forth. So the first kind of practice is to develop more of that sense of flow. And the second kind of practice is to see where there isn't the flow. It's to study where the self appears thick. And I want to really uh, thank uh, some teachers that I worked with some time ago, uh, Tina Rasmussen and and Stephen Snyder, who were were teachers of Samadhi. And they had the uh, concept in one of their talks of thinning the self, which I really liked. They they used it differently than I used it, but I really liked the metaphor. I found it quite, you know, in my exploration of ways to teach a knot, I found the notion of thinning the self and looking for the thick self, a very practical way to to work with what otherwise, again, we could see could be confusing. So I'll talk about each of those and point to ways of practicing and that hopefully we can can develop tomorrow. Some of you know the uh, psychologist Csikszentmihalyi, is a Hungarian psychologist who developed the, set, the uh, concept of flow and experience. How many of you know that concept? Some, probably, yeah, a lot of you. And he talked about flow. He said, with flow, a person performing an activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement, and enjoyment of the process of the activity. Flow is characterized by complete absorption in what one does. Interestingly, very little or no sense of self, very often. And, you know, uh, my experience that I mentioned uh, two nights ago about being with the writing of that essay was a kind of flow experience. I was totally there. And if you think about flow experiences, what's interesting about them is the self is very thinned out. You know, and... I have a a group that I work with on Wednesdays at Spirit Rock, and we we explored this uh, a while ago. And I asked them, what were your experiences of flow? And they pointed to experiences, for example, uh, being, you know, in the mountains, with the ocean and the forest, with the earth in various ways. Sometimes uh, music or art. sometimes just being with people very close to one, there can be a sense of flow where one's fully engaged. And interestingly, when you look at it, there can be often very little self-consciousness, self-image, very little sense of self. Think of a jazz musician. 
who's totally with the flow of the music, if that jazz musician says, that was a really great riff I just had, at that moment, musician's out of it, right? Is not, not with the flow. So it's a very interesting concept to point to a way that we experience not self. And I would say that if you look at some of the most important experiences of your lives, interestingly, they would probably have some aspects of the flow experience. And in a lot of them, or maybe even most of them, there'd be very little sense of self. Which again, we're getting into paradox. In the most important experiences of my life, maybe a sense of deep connection and love, connection with the natural world, and so forth, meditative experience, there might be very little self-consciousness, self-image, thinking, and one might just be with that flow of experience. You know, and it's that case in, you know, when you look to reports from art, you know, a lot of artists I talk to, they say, when I'm really doing the art, there's not much me there. Something's just coming through, right? And same thing if you look at sports, I have a friend named uh, Andrew Cooper who wrote a book called Playing in the Zone. And he reported instance after instance of people uh, in different kinds of sports who manifested this. And there typically would be almost no sense of self. You know, very, very amazing. There's uh, some of you know the basketball player, uh, Bill Russell, you know, who's a great uh, uh, player. And he had a, uh, autobiography and he talked about the qualities of for him when he was in that zone he said there it was characterized by profound joy acute intuition which sometimes felt like precognition a feeling of effortlessness in the midst of intense exertion a sense of the everything taking place in slow motion feelings of awe and perfection increased mastery and self-transcendence that was what he reported. That's a basketball player who, right? Who's using almost spiritual terms, right? And um, so interestingly, that is one way of accessing. And I think we probably experience that more than we realize. To me, that's an experience of anatta, of not self, or at least it's very much in that direction. And we can experience that when we're just very fully with the dishes, with a meal, right? Sometimes just very fully with that. <clears throat> so we can do that in, in ordinary activities. And we can also do that in our meditative practices. And in many ways we've been cultivating that sense of anatta. I mentioned that the main way that the Buddha taught that kind of thinning of the self was to invite people to look at experience in terms of the basic constituents of experience. In his model, that was called the skandhas. It was uh, consciousness, well, I'll start at the beginning. It was form, the, the body, body sensations, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, perception, what we could more or less call thoughts and emotions and consciousness. And he said, you can actually train to just experience these aspects and see that any sense of self is a kind of addition to that flow of experience. And the addition is gonna take 
what forms? What forms does that addition take? It's going to take, you know, it's going to be commentary, you know. You're, you're with the breath and you say, I'm really flowing with the breath now, <laughs> right? You make a comment, that's, that's an addition, right? That's a comment about the flow of experience. Or maybe it's uh, the form of liking or not liking. You know, this is really great or this is not great. And so the instruction, again, very, very simple. Can you just be with the flow of experience? Much like when we were exploring uh, impermanence, the way we've been doing that, just to be with sound. And then when we add the instruction on uh, dukkha and we look for reactivity, we see one of the main ways that the self appears. The self appears as reactivity, as commentary, as liking and not liking, and so forth. And for right now, the invitation is just to study this. Study, uh, study that flow of experience. And these, so the instructions are not very different from the ones that we've given uh, this morning. Just be with the flow of sound. You know, start out by following the senses and then both be with the thinned out flow of experience and then notice what gets in the way of it. That's the simple instruction. That's the instruction in its essence, which takes us very, very deeply when we continually follow it. Very simple in concept. You know, that's why I find it not so helpful to go into all the conceptual material about anatta, but just to point to that way of understanding the practice. It's, not so, it's pretty simple in that way. So let me say also a few words about the noticing and uh, studying when the self becomes thick. That's really the other part of it. We open ourselves to the flow. We let ourselves be with the flow of experience and then we see what gets in the way of it. That's, that's our practice of anatta in, a, in, a, in essence. And so we notice when there is a strong sense of self that it can be there for all sorts of reasons. Some of them are patterns that we can notice and let go of. Some of the reasons for the thick self are because there are wounds or painful areas in our experience, which we don't so much let go of. That would be spiritual bypassing, but we work to heal them. We work to address them. And so that takes some sorting out. So I'll cover some of that. Um, This is from the Zen teacher, uh, Dogen, from about the, I think about the 13th century. To to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. That's also a brief summary of our practice. So on the one hand, we look into the different manifestations of self. And in a way, we've been doing that as we've been studying mindfulness practice almost from the beginning, that we notice when there's uh, a sense of uh, self, a sense of self-image, a sense of uh, reactivity, uh, maybe judging ourselves, judging someone else. We notice that kind of um, pattern. We continually uh, look for that and In looking at the thick self, this is where it's actually quite important to bring in 
the metta and the compassion. Because looking at a lot of our patterns of the thick self um, can be painful at times, right? I, I often like to say that we don't put in our advertising material at Spirit Rock. Please come to Spirit Rock. Study your many, many forms of neuroses. <laughs> Study them continually over and over again. Become a connoisseur of your own reactivity. What do we say? Calm, develop wisdom, <laughs> compassion. <laughs> right, so. Um, but in actuality, a lot of what we do is we study the thick self. We, we look at it. We, and, and this isn't easy. So some sense of compassion is, and, and metta is really crucial as we look at the thick self. Uh, the Tibetan teacher uh, Trungpa Rinpoche once said, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> yeah. you, you may differ with the percentage. <laughs> um, and it actually takes, um, takes some courage and takes some, um, what, persistence to be with this. Uh, the poet Yeats once said, it takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. So we notice our reactivity. We notice the pushing away, I don't want this. We notice grasping. We study it. We notice its nature a little more carefully. You know, and it's actually pretty interesting to study grasping. It's actually um, not as simple as you might think. Uh, um, a number of years ago, I, I organized a class with Diana Winston, who's another Spirit Rock teacher who lives in LA. And we called it uh, Greed Management. We had, we had very, very low enrollment. To be precise, we had five people, <laughs> two teachers. <laughs> but Diana and I were really into it. And we, uh, we, so we had a five-week class and we studied it. And our, our final exam was to have people do silent walking meditation through a newly opened uh, Bed Bath & Beyond Superstore <laughs> and watch the mind. <laughs> but what we found was interesting. We found when we really looked at greed carefully, we found that, there, that um, greed and grasping had, the, uh, had connected with it self-centeredness, typically a lack of concern for consequences, lack of really, so there, there's, you can see there's some delusion, right? There's delusion in the grasping, I want this. We don't attend to consequences. We don't even necessarily think about them. And also, typically when we looked at the greed, as a form of grasping, we found that there was a lack of concern for others. It was all about me, very self-centered in, the, in where we looked at it. And so we can, um, we can study the, when the self becomes thick. We can use some of what we explored in the afternoon. Look for when there's a really strong sense of pleasant or unpleasant. Very often that will lead to grasping or pushing away. It becomes a clue. So we want to find these different ways of, of studying it. 
You know, we can we can see the um, we can see the thick self when in the phenomenon of being judgmental of oneself or others, and we can notice that. We can study it. We can notice it when we become self-conscious, or we work a lot with self-image. You know, which can can happen a lot. And sometimes in, even in retreats, we can, you know, I know in my early days of sitting, I, I sometimes would like to sit a long time. And I, I, I wouldn't have admitted it at the time, but I, I definitely wanted people to know that I was sitting a long time, right? So there can be some self-image as a meditator, right? James Barras often tells the story of, of walking really slowly and walking meditation and making, and making the comment to himself, Looking good. <laughs> so we want to notice. We want to notice the thick self and study it. What's the, what's the storyline? Get to know it well. Get to know it, know it well when it appears. What, what's our predominant way that it appears? Is it self-image, self-judgment, reactivity, wanting or not walking, wanting? And it's, I think it's important to say that there's also, there also are elements of the thick self that are uh, beneath, the, beneath consciousness. There are aspects of our being that we're not really conscious of which lead us to have a, a thick sense of self. And that's where we often, noticing the thick self is also connected with looking for healing and transformation. You know, if I, for example, um, some of my sense of self might have been formed when I was five years old when my parents told me, don't be angry. And I stopped being angry and I thought anyone who gets angry, including myself, is a bad person. And I developed this notion that soon became quite unconscious. And maybe uh, I'm in a relationship and someone tells me, do you have an issue with anger? What do you mean? <laughs> right. And um, and yet it's beneath the threshold of consciousness. I don't really know sort of what happened when I was five years old. And there are any number of issues like that, abandonment, trauma, all sorts of issues. We may have a thick self that's there because of what happened early in our lives. And we can notice that thick self, but I think unlike some aspects of the thick self, this isn't about noticing and letting go of it. That would be a call to actually treat it to work to heal that territory. Again, that can be a potential misunderstanding in our, in our practice. There's something very similar with um, social conditioning that's relatively unconscious. You know, we have a lot of conditioning about gender, about race and so forth. And a lot of that conditioning can be, can be very, very thick. It can lead to a very thick sense of self. And yet, you know, so, so for example, um, there's, a, there's a, a beautiful book by uh, a teacher and friend named uh, Zenju Earthland Manual. I think it's called The Way of Tenderness. And she talks about, as an African-American, how in Zen circles, she was basically taught, don't worry about the self, transcend it. And she saw that for her, as an African-American, this was not wise counsel, that it was actually skillful 
really to see how her identity had been, you know, systematically devalued by the mainstream and that that, of course, was internalized to a certain degree. And so for people who have those kind of social wounds as well as more psychological wounds, it's important when you notice the thick self there to work for healing and social transformation. That's an important addition, I think, to to these teachings. And it, it brings it brings in a certain subtlety. So we can both work with uh, the teachings on, you know, being with the flow and um, working to identify and let go of aspects of the thick self. But if they're ones that are connected with wounds of the kind I've been talking about, then the, it really something else is called for as well. Does that make some sense? Makes it a little more tricky, doesn't it? It's a little more, a little more subtle. So I think the trajectory of our practice becomes a little more complicated in that way, that we continue to train to look at the manifestations of self, particularly the ones where there's not a deep wound or charge. We look at those in meditation to the extent that we have some of those deeper wounds or charge, we need to attend to them, typically outside of meditative context, but sometimes in the meditative context as well. You know, I work with um, people a lot on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind. And we do some of that work, which is getting at territories of wound. We do some of that in the context of retreats. That can be, it can be done as well in retreats. <clears throat> so here we, we, we train particularly in opening to the flow of experience to the flow of impermanent experience. And we notice the forms of the thick self that get in the way. We notice the reactivity, we study it. We notice the liking and disliking. We notice the self-image, the self-judgment, or just the pervasive thinking, maybe self-centered thinking. We notice that and we typically learn in that context to, to let go of it. To be, to be more with the flow, to study it and to let go. And as we do that, we also start, I'll, I'll point to, a, a, there's a horizon of practice we'll be pointing to in the next days in which we do a further thinning of the self. And I'll close with this, this emphasis. One of the interesting forms of self that gets developed is that of what I, I call the meditative self. That we develop a kind of um, well, we develop a, a meditative self that does certain things. The meditative self tracks 
when I'm on the object. You know, we set this up, the meditative self. It's not a full-blown self, like a personal self, but it's a kind of a self. The, the meditative self is mindful of what's happening. It tracks what's going on. There is a knower and a known. There's a structure of subject and object. It's, and the meditative self watches things, it notices, it assesses how one's doing, you know, and we set that up. And so in this interest in deconstructing the self, we set up a self in order to deconstruct the self, <laughs> okay? And um, in fact, it's very, very useful. And I, I remember uh, there's a well-known uh, American teacher named Tana Sarabhikku, who has a whole book on the teachings about anatta, which, is, which will be in a resource list that we'll give at the end of the retreat. We'll give you a substantial resource list with quotations and readings and so forth. And uh, Tanisara Bhikkhu said that actually there's, again, he says a lot of misunderstandings, but he says the sense of self is very useful in many ways. <clears throat> it's very, we, we can't really be ethical without a sense of self. We can't really be responsible you know, and we could say that we can't really do meditation without a certain kind of sense of self that tracks things, that looks for things, that does things, and so forth. And Tanisara Bhikkhu says, the sense of self is very useful up to a point. And then there are also practices that go beyond all of the senses of self, that point towards greater liberation. That's what we're going to be exploring in the next days. And so we'll actually be pointing to ways that we not only learn to see the thick self, but we learn to see the, the rather thin meditative self and point to how we might even let go of that. And open, this is where we start opening to what we call spacious awareness, that there's a further thinning of these structures of self that can open up yet further to a way of being and a way of seeing. <clears throat> and so that can make a, a kind of connection with the third main practice that we'll be getting into in uh, two days and that we'll introduce tomorrow night. <clears throat> Because all of our basic practices point towards that further and further thinning of the self. Again, sometimes we have to go back and do a kind of healing work on some parts of our being, but we try, we do that in the context of this further thinning of the self. And the metta practice does that. We do metta and we have more of a sense of the flow of kindness and love in our being. You know, there's a famous passage where one, the Buddha comes to visit the uh, several monks who have been doing so much metta that they have just taken on one name because they say our bodies and minds are connected <laughs> and we are the Anarudas. <laughs> you know, Anaruda was the uh, senior monk. And, he's, and the, so the Buddha says, how is it that you Anarudas are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as milk and water? 
regarding one another with the eye of affection. We've developed metta, says Anuruddha, in regard to acts of body, speech, and mind. We have diverse bodies, but we have only one mind and heart. This has been motivated by metta. We no longer prefer our own happiness to that of others. And so we develop through our insight practice. In some ways, the samadhi practice can also go in this direction. We do do it through the metta practice as well. And so there's a way that we just to name that third main form of practice, we're linking with spacious awareness. All of the practices point in that direction. You can't rush it, but it's helpful to know the map that we're really uh, going in that, in that kind of direction. So let me just finish with, this is a reading from, uh, from the Buddha about how the training in seeing anatta occurs. This is how the training should be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine, and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. Not doing anything particularly different from what we're doing, but doing it a fair amount. So in a sense, the, um, the pointers are clear and not too complicated. Just stay with the further thinning of the self. Notice when the self is thick, study it. Sometimes heal some part and then come back and continue with the journey of thinning. That's it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.